following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Well, um, I need to begin this morning by uh, confessing something to you. Um, I've been a hypocrite. Uh, Last Sunday night, I watched something that I had told you before to avoid. Um, I watched an episode of Preachers of L.A. Uh, If you're not familiar with that, it's a reality show. It's six pastors living here in Los Angeles area. My wife was with me. She watched it too. Um, But as we were watching it, she fell asleep halfway through. As we were watching it, I was reminded of why I had encouraged you to avoid it. Um... It portrays these guys and their ministries as all about money, opulent lifestyles, uh, over and over. Their message is that God only desires that the main goal in life is uh, for him to help you be wealthy and make you rich and comfortable and happy in this life. That's what it's all about. And they use that message to have such a life for themselves. And it sickened me to see Jesus' name almost used as, a, as an incantation to get rich. Grieve me to see the word of God being turned and, and twisted as a tool to manipulate others to put money in their own pockets. And unfortunately, their genie God is worshipped not just in their churches, but also in so many others across this land, where giving to God has become a means to wealth and prosperity. Their message is not that it is better to give than to receive. Their message is it is better to give to receive. So the whole purpose of giving has been distorted and and warped. It's been changed into, instead of being an act of worship and faith, a means and an opportunity to make money, to be successful, to have comfort, to be blessed. And so we're told time and time again, give so God will bless you, so you can be prosperous, so you can succeed in life, so that you can have all that you want. The glitter of gold gold has blinded many in our culture, hasn't it? To what God has really said about why we are to give and, and how it is to be an act of worship. And so this morning, as part of our What's Up on Sunday series, we're going to talk about giving. It's something that we do each week when we're together. And there's a reason for that. But we have to understand and be motivated by the right things in regards to worship and giving. And so to understand the biblical motivation, we're going to be looking at a letter that Paul had written to a church which was known for its generosity, a church which was known for its sacrificial giving. That church was the church at Philippi. And in fact, Paul was prompted to write to them because of a gift that he had sent, they had sent to him while he was in prison. But before going to Philippians, I, I want to turn to 1 Corinthians 16 for a moment because I first want to address the question of why do we have a time of giving on Sunday? Why do we have a time to worship in that way when we gather together on Sunday. And to answer that, I want you to see what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, looking at verse 1. He's speaking here to the Corinthians. He's talking to them about a ministry opportunity that he had been presenting to various churches. And it was in regards to helping brothers and sisters who were struggling financially and with other needs in Jerusalem. Persecution and other circumstances had had brought them to such a place that there were they, many of them were in dire situations. And so Paul wanted to care for those from whom the gospel had originally come out of Jerusalem. And so he writes this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16.1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are to do also. On the first day of each week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive... Whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Again, we see Paul here encouraging these believers to set aside funds to provide for the needs of fellow believers in Jerusalem. They were suffering extreme hardship. And notice here, he he tells them, he gives them a procedure, a process to to set aside those funds uh, that they would um, each week as they gather together. 
collect those funds and that they would be available so that when he came, they wouldn't be scrambling. Like, hey, we need to, hey, we need to remember to get some money for those who are in need in Jerusalem. No, Paul said, do this in a systematic, even formalized way when you gather together so that the offering is ready and you can send someone with it when I go to Jerusalem. And notice here, when did he say that offering was to be taken? The first day of the week, right? Which is what day? Sunday. Acts or uh, John 20 verse 19 mentions that the first day of the week is Sunday. And this was a practice then and it became formalized within the church. In fact, we see in the middle of the second century, about 60, 70 years after the last apostle died, Justin Martyr wrote in his work, The First Apology, and he described in there in very great detail what the typical church service looked like when God's people would gather together. It would include a time where they would hear the word of God read and then explained, and then they would pray with one another. They would have communion together, and the service, the time together, would end with a time of giving. And so we can see from the days of the apostles and in the early church all the way to today, there's time set aside and when, when we gather together on Sunday to give. It's a tradition that has survived for 2,000 years now. All right, so I wanted to set that as a little bit of a foundation. Let's go over to Philippians. For we will see there what is God's purpose in giving. Why did he have a time set aside when we gather on Sundays to give? And how should we be motivated to do that? Tim read earlier from this passage we're going to be looking at, Philippians 4. I want to read it again. Philippians 4, verse 10. Paul ends his letter with these words, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever. And ever. Amen. So here we see as Paul ends his letter, he turns to one more subject, one more topic. He had been in prison a couple of years uh, in Caesarea and now was in Rome. And the people of Philippi had heard about their brother Paul who was in this situation. It's probably 10 years or so after he had first brought the gospel to Philippi. Remember, we talked about, I think it was last week, Lydia was the first person that he had brought to Christ. And as he was there in prison, then they heard about him. They, they wanted to care for his needs. And so they collected a gift for him. They had it sent to him through one of their own, Epaphroditus. And when he arrives at this, uh, where Paul was in prison, and, and Paul was so grateful and so encouraged and so appreciated their care for him, that's one of the things that prompted him to write this letter to them. And here we see as Paul begins this letter, he says in verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. He was very encouraged and very joyful. But he wanted to make sure one thing. Because remember, there was a rumor that dogged Paul throughout his ministry. It wasn't true, but many would accuse Paul because they didn't like his message. They would accuse him of being in it for the money, right? And so Paul here wants to make sure, I think this may be part of his motivation, but, but wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not in it for the money. I, I've learned to be content having it or not having it. He wanted to encourage them that the ministry that he was in was not about money at all. In fact, I don't think Paul would have been part of the final cut to make preachers of Rome that show that they had there. But uh, you didn't know that. They had reality TV back in those days, too. But in any case, he wanted to remind the Philippians, and he took this opportunity that it's not about money. It's not about depending on wealth. It's about trusting in Jesus. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
This is a reminder. It's not, I don't depend on material things. I depend on Christ. He is the one in whom I'm motivated and strengthened and encouraged. And Paul wanted to encourage them to always look to Christ. But at the same time, as he's saying this, he's anticipating, you know, he's saying, well, thank you for what you, your care for me, but, you know, I don't need it. I'm content. And what might they be tempted to think? Right? We say, we scratched and say, we don't have a lot. We gave this money to Paul and he doesn't even want it. But Paul's saying, no, 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 no. What you did was a, was a beautiful thing. In fact, he says in verse 14, you have done well. That's a word that means nobly. It was a, a beautiful thing that you did. And he wanted to make sure that he did not dismiss their care for him. And then here in verses 14 to 20, we find in Paul's response to their gift, five motivations to give as an act of worship. Because, again, giving is really all about worship because it's centered on God. In fact, remember what Jesus said about money and God? He talked about uh, this in the Gospels when he said, No man can have two masters. You cannot serve God and right mammon or wealth. Jesus laid it out right there. Money can be just as much an object of worship as God, and you can't worship both of them. So it is a big deal. It is important. The five motivations we're going to see here in Philippians 4 are this, are these. We are to be motivated to give for God's gospel, for God's reward, for God's delight, for God's promise, and for God's glory. The first motivation that we see here in verses 14 to 16 is for God's gospel. God intended to have giving as a means to advance the gospel, particularly through the local church. Some of you, as you're looking at this text, you're noticing, but I don't see the word gospel here. Where are you getting that from? Well, notice what Paul says here. Verse 14, he says that they had done well, you have done well, to share in my affliction. That word share is the, has the same root as the word koinonia, this idea of sharing, of fellowship, participating together. And then Paul, in this word in particular, he adds the preposition soon, which in Greek means with. And so it's this idea of participating with the emphasis together. We are sharing together. We are participating together. And then in verse 15, he says, no church. There's the word again, shared. It's shared with me in the matter of giving. These two words for share, which both have the same Greek roots, are hearkening back to or they echo back to chapter one. In fact, look over there for a minute. Chapter one. Beginning of this letter, Paul begins in a similar way as he ends the letter. Philippians 1 3. He says this I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation, there's that word in the gospel from the first day until now. For I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. What is the tone here in these opening verses? What's Paul's attitude? Here. Come on. Right? I heard some of you saying it. There's a joy, a gratitude, right? He's grateful. He said, I'm thankful for you. I'm always offering prayer for you. And what was it that motivated that gratitude? Their participation, right, in the gospel. They were partakers of the grace with him. See, they were encur- he was encouraged and, and motivated by their participation in the gospel. Again, the same word is used. Verse 3, your participation, koinonia. And verse 7, you're all partakers. Sun koinonos. And so this letter, it begins and ends the same tone of gratitude and surrounding the same idea that they were sharers with him. They were partakers with him. And in chapter one, it was in regards to the gospel. And in the same way, in chapter four, this participation and connection is also in regards to the gospel through the means of giving. But how is it they could be participating with him? Paul didn't stay in Philippi, right? He traveled all over the place sharing the gospel. And the Philippians didn't go with him. And yet he says that they participated together. Well, one significant way that they participated was in in their giving. In their providing for him. Philippians 4.14, Paul says they shared in his affliction. 
Again, they weren't physically with him, sharing in his affliction in that way, but they eased the burden of his suffering while he was in prison by providing for his needs. And we have to remember something. In those days, in Paul's day, if you were in prison, you didn't receive food and clothing and things like that from the prison. You were on your own. You needed somebody else, family member or friend, to provide those things for you. And if you didn't have that, if you had no one to provide for you, you would starve. So there was a a definite need for others to care for you if you were in prison. And that was what the Philippians did. And that provision... Listen, that provision not only sustained Paul's life, but how did he use his time? The life that he was sustained by through their gift. What did he do while he was in prison? Played cards, you know, smoked a little bit. He wrote some letters, letters that we have. And what was he doing? You know, prison guard was there. People would come by and talk to him. You know, was he catching up on the latest scores and the... He's preaching the gospel, right? He was preaching the gospel. And notice back, if you go to Philippians 1.12, Paul mentions their provision not only sustained his life, but there was an even greater impact that in sustaining his life brought about. Philippians 1.12, he said, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that in my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known through the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. What was happening as he was in prison? Even the the guards were hearing the gospel. Everybody's hearing the gospel. He said it spread throughout the entire Praetorian Guard. Those who were involved, those of secret service for the the Caesar. And in Philippians 4.22, we learn that there were actually those who who had been reached within Caesar's own household. So by their giving, by their providing for Paul's needs, they were in a very real way providing the opportunity for the gospel to reach even into Caesar's home. Think about that. They were supporting gospel ministry and they were participating in that way. In verses 15 and 16, Paul indicates that the Philippians gave regularly from the moment they became believers. He said even in Thessalonica, right away, that's where the next place that he went, they were sending money to help him out, to provide for him. And so from their example... We can see that giving is is so much more than than putting money in a plate or in the little bag as it goes by because you're supposed to or because you're made to feel guilty if you don't or because that's just what we do at church or because you want something in return. None of those are reasons. We see from the Philippians here that first and foremost, we give for the sake of the gospel. We give for the sake of the gospel. We give so that the gospel would advance throughout our church, our community, and in the world. And we should never look at our giving as supporting Calvary Bible Church, but as supporting the gospel. And that does not just mean supporting missions and missionaries, though that certainly is an emphasis. It's also about supporting gospel ministry at every level. It's about supporting the purpose of the church to make disciples, both not only abroad, but also at home. And that disciple-making, it means not only evangelism from the Great Commission, right, where Jesus said, make disciples, baptizing. We talked about that last week. It was synonymous with the idea of bringing them to faith. And then he said a second, though, right? Make disciples, baptizing, and... Come on, you know this, right? It's only a week ago. Baptizing and teaching them, right, to observe all that he commanded. It's this idea that we give... We give not only to support missions, both locally and globally, but we also give to provide for for support staff, for pastors, for directors, for supplies, for facilities, all for the purpose of making disciples. That's what they're ultimately to be for, and that's how they are to be used. And to be honest with you, I, I don't see this as a job, as a vocation. This is not a means for me to make an income. That's not... My intent, and I think I speak for the rest of the staff and the pastors and the office staff to say they're not in it for the money either. It's not a job for them. It's a ministry. We honestly see it that way as a ministry. Now, some may say, well, OK, I get that. But just how does paying for a building fit into all this? How is the building part of the gospel? The buildings and sharing the gospel. Well, 
actually, actually, in a way, it is. Because do you realize the gospel ministry that these facilities around us support? It's not only providing an environment for us to gather together, our children to meet, our youth to meet, and, and for our Sunday school classes and these things so that we could be uh, making disciples, but there's another church that meets here. Our brothers and sisters from the Armenian Reformed Bible Church use these facilities to make disciples and advance the gospel within the Armenian community. And each year we host the Master's Academy. It's a ministry that is focused on providing pastoral training in centers all around the world. And they gather here each year. In fact, I heard this year there are going to be 500 gathering for the conference. I don't know how we're going to feed them all, but we're going to figure that out. But they gather here each year to be encouraged, to have fellowship, to receive training. And that goes out all over the world. Each week, these facilities are used for Bible study fellowship. Child Evangelism Fellowship uses these facilities. The Awana Annual Conference is here. Next week, I think it is, there's an outreach that Friends of Israel are doing using these facilities. These are just a few examples. These buildings are not a monument to Calvary Bible Church. They are to be dedicated to Christ and His gospel. That's what they're for. And I hope we never lose sight of that. I hope these never become an edifice that is no longer about gospel ministry. And and a few, was it last year or two ago, I remember reading this article and it had all these pictures of churches that were now convenience stores or places of business and even some have been changed into mosques. There were some in London that have been converted that way. I hope that never happens here. So giving towards things like the buildings or the utilities or the photocopies or whatever should be seen in light of that. We need to be held accountable as leaders to make sure that what is given goes to gospel ministry in all its aspects. Another aspect of gospel ministry through giving is that we not overlook one another's needs, right? And that's clearly the message throughout the scriptures, particularly the New Testament that we provide for one another, that we care for the needs in our body. And one of the ways we can do that, and we do do that as a church, is through what we have called the Benevolent Fund. How many of you have heard of that, by the way? The Benevolent Fund? Most of you? Um, Money's been set aside in the budget for this fund to provide for those who are in financial need, financial distress. And I'm telling you this because I want to encourage you, if you ever find yourself in a situation where you have a significant burden financially, Please, please do not hesitate to seek out help. If you know a brother and sister who's in that situation, they would never say anything because they don't want to, you know, I've heard of so many, I don't want to be a burden on the church or whatever. There's a fund set aside to help. It's something that, that God has allowed us to do to be able to provide for needs here in the body. And so I want to make sure that you know about that. Brad Hirsch is our deacon responsible for that fund. And if you don't know what he looks like, uh, if you don't know how to contact them, just look for one of the tallest guys in the church. It's probably Brad. But if you can't contact them that way, or don't know, just call the church office and ask Ruth for the information. But I want to encourage you another way, too. If someone approaches you that you don't know, asking for financial assistance, don't feel obligated to give them money. Now, we want to be generous. We want to be kind. We want to be loving. But we also need to be wise, don't we? And there are those. The church is a prime target for thieves and scam artists. In fact, we had one just recently here who was scamming for money. And so you know what you need to do again? We want to be loving them because there could be times where it's a legitimate need, right? And somebody just reaching out for help. If you don't know them, you know what you can do? Let them know about our benevolent fund and even call for them. You can call Ruth and get the information. And then that money is set aside to help those needs. And there are folks involved and individuals involved in that fund who can uh, talk with them and figure out if it's a legitimate need or not. So we've had that money set aside for that. So, again, be wise. We want to be helpful. We want to be a source of, of outreach within our community and help those in our body. And at the same time, we want to be wise with the resources that God has provided. Does that make sense? Well, before going to the second motivation, I, I don't want to be remiss, though, in encouraging all of us to support gospel-centered ministries here and abroad. Let's be missions-minded, just like the Philippians. It's amazing. Paul talked about them, how they were poor, they were afflicted, they were destitute, and yet they were one of the most generous, giving, faithful churches that he knew of. We need to be the same. Let's continue to increase are giving to provide for more missionaries. 
and also to provide more for the missionaries we support, right? Like Hal and Amy, who just left. And I think Goodwin and Justine are leaving for the Far East soon as well. And so we want to support them and many others. So let's be focused on that. Let's provide and give for gospel ministry. Amen. The second motivation to give is seen in verse 17. And that motivation is for God's reward. Paul says there, not that I seek the gift itself. And again, he's reminded, again, look, look, I'm not in it for the money. I appreciate your gift, but I'm not seeking that. Ultimately, I'm seeking. And he says here, the profit or the fruit or the interest which increases to your account. And by in that phrase, in that statement, Paul's saying here, he's rejoicing not in his gain, but in theirs by their giving, that God would reward them. The Bible is very clear about this, that the one who gives will be rewarded by God. Proverbs 11, verse 25, the generous man will be prosperous and he who waters will himself be watered. Or Proverbs 19, 17, one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord and the Lord will repay him for his good deed. Jesus said, give and it will be given to you in Luke 6 or 2 Corinthians 9, 6. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Again, in the context there of giving. Now, listening to those passages and hearing what Paul's saying, how it would increase to their account, it sounds like the motivation is give so you can get. Do the guys on TV have it right then? Give their ministry money and God will multiply it back to you tenfold, a hundredfold. Just give so you can receive. And that seems to be what these passages are implying. And God does reward those who give. But let me ask you this. Do you think that reward is primarily money? When he talks about that, it includes material needs. But think about, again, the context here. When Paul's talking about this and he says he's... Uh, encouraged that and seeking for the increase to their account that God would bless them. But wouldn't it be odd if Paul was focusing here on earthly gain when he had gone to so much trouble in the verses right before talking about he wasn't dependent on earthly things, that he was content no matter whether he had a lot or little. Wouldn't it be odd for him then to to be saying, but give so you can get. Or wouldn't it be strange for Paul to talk about being content as he did a little earlier, in plenty or in want, and then tell him, but go ahead and give so you can have plenty. Wouldn't it be contradictory for Paul to say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I'm not trusting in riches or money or wealth. I'm trusting in Christ. But you know what? Give so you can be repaid. Wouldn't that tempt them then to be trusting in their material possessions rather than Christ? So again, the context here he's speaking of, Paul's talking about more than just earthly treasure. For all through his letter, his focus has been on their spiritual needs. In fact, I read back in Philippians 1.6 when he said, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to perfect it, to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That was foremost on Paul's mind, their relationship with him, their dependence on him, their trust in him, their walk with him, their spiritual needs. So God's reward would not just be for the material needs that, that we all have. We need food. We need clothing. We need these things, but more importantly, for their spiritual needs, things like having joy, regardless of circumstances, things like being content, whether you have much or little things like being uh, experiencing the joy and the blessing when you give to others. These are the spiritual blessings that God gives. And beyond God's blessings here and now, didn't Jesus talk about a, a heavenly blessing, a heavenly treasure when we give Matthew six? What did he say about that? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Missionary Jim Elliott famously said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Or I saw written on one man's tombstone these words, What I have spent, I lost. What I saved, I left. What I gave, I have. John Wesley said, When I have any money, I get rid of it as quickly as possible, lest it find a way into my heart. John Wesley was known as a man, incredible giver. There's wisdom there. 
And you know, we often fail to look at the, the big picture of just how much our actions here on earth are connected with actions in eternity or what happens in eternity. That this life does impact the next. What you do here, particularly the area of money, has an impact in the next life. That's why Jesus and the apostles spent so much time talking about it. And here in verse 17, when Paul speaks of the profit which increases to your account, he's not making an investment pitch here. Saying, okay, okay, listen. You give such and such amount and you will be blessed with long life. And, and throw in a little bit more, you will be blessed with a prosperous and long life. And there's a special offer this week only. If you give a little bit more, you will have not only a prosperous and long life, but a happy life. But call today. This is a limited time offer. But that's not what Paul's doing here. He's not pawning off spiritual blessing that can be bought, something that you can purchase. It's the same point Jesus is making in Matthew chapter 6. How you give, the, the attitude, the consistency, the faithfulness, the degree of sacrifice. How you give is a reflection of the true desires of your heart. What you really value, what you really desire, right? That's what Jesus said, where your treasure is. That's where your heart is. And you see, that is why Paul was so encouraged by the Philippians' gift. Because he knew that these Philippians, they're consistent, they're sacrificial, they're eager, they're willing giving. It showed him that Christ mattered more to them than money. It showed Paul that, that the gospel mattered more than things. It showed him that caring for God's people mattered more than earthly possessions. And so he was encouraged by that. And that lets us know that, you know, our giving, your giving is really a thermometer. It's a measuring stick of the true condition of your heart. For, for you, do you know the way to figure out what really matters most to you? One, I read one pastor, he said, you can find out the way to know is to look first at where you spend your time and second, where you spend your money. Those two questions, those two areas will show you exactly what you value most, what matters most to you. And the heart that is heavenly minded will spend it on eternal things. And as a result, Paul says here, reap God's reward. So I want to ask you, whose reward do you desire most? The world's or his? Which one do you think lasts longer? Which one do you think is more reliable? Which one do you think ultimately is more satisfying? You see, giving is not just important for the mission of God's church. It's also important for our own hearts. There's a third motivation, see here in the text in verse 18, and that motivation is to give for God's delight. Paul again begins verse 18 by expressing, he wanted to make sure that the Philippians understood how encouraged he was, and so he he begins the verse by expressing his gratitude for their gift. And he emphasizes that gratitude by essentially repeating the same thing three times over. He says, I received everything. I have an abundance. I'm, I'm amply supplied. Here he's emphasizing, I I have far, far more than I need from what you have given. And again, it shows the amazing generosity of these Philippians. They've given him an overabundance. And these Philippians are such an example to us of sacrificial and joyful givers. Again, I mentioned earlier, Paul talked about them to the Corinthians. He said they were an example of those who, who, from their deep poverty, they overflowed in their wealth and generosity and they gave beyond their ability that can be difficult for us. It's hard to be motivated in the same way these Philippians were. And so Paul gives another motivation right at the end of verse 18, where he says, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent. And then notice how he describes their gift. What are the three ways he describes it? A fragrant aroma. What's the next one? Acceptable sacrifice and then well-pleasing to God. And what's interesting here is how Paul has switched his terminology. For the words that he had been using up to this point in verses 16 to 18 were, were more technical terms in Greek for accounting, business transactions. They were focused on commercial aspects. Words like matter, giving, 
giving and receiving, profit, account, I have received. These are all technical terms that were used in commerce. But then in the middle of verse 18, notice, he shifts from the language of business to the language of sacrifice. Jeffrey Wilson said the switch, this switch to the vocabulary of sacrifice reminds them that its greatest value, that is giving, lay in what it meant to God. Because here Paul describes that value in three ways. He says a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. These are all terms that are used in regards to sacrifices. That phrase fragrant aroma, does that sound familiar? Old Testament, God talked about the burnt offerings. And as those offerings are being offered up and the smoke from those offerings is, is wafting upward, that it was a sweet, a fragrant aroma to him. Noah offered such a sacrifice. Remember when after he got out of the ark and he put an altar, he offered a sacrifice. And it says there, God was pleased. It was a soothing aroma to him. And we get that imagery, right? I mean, what happens when you're barbecuing? My wife and I, we go on walks together. We're walking by and we we smell this barbecue meat come by. And we're like, you know what the first thing we do is? (laughs) I'm hungry. (laughs) Yeah, knock on the door. Who said that? I I should try that next time. Right, but we understand this idea. You know, when you smell this meat being cooked and the fat being burned and it just comes in your nostrils and like, "Mm, that smells good. And God, he called the Old Testament offering a a soothing aroma. Not because he liked a good barbecue as well, but it was when it came from the heart of one who was offering it in genuine worship to God. That's what pleased him. And Paul is saying here that when... We give with a generous and and sacrificial and selfless heart. And when we give as unto the Lord, it's like to him a nice tri-tip on the grill. It's pleasant. It's enjoyable. Satisfying. And that response is furthered by the second expression he gives. Paul calls it an acceptable sacrifice. Again, they're acceptable, meaning well-pleasing, favorable, welcome, desired, invited. Paul emphasizes the point further by saying it's well-pleasing to God. So we see all these different synonyms here. Soothing, acceptable, pleasing. These are all words that that convey this idea of of satisfying, of of delightful, bringing pleasure. You know, I I want us to think about this a minute. This is taking giving to a whole different level. Because here, Paul is using sacrificial language. Language of worship. He's talking about it to God when it's offered in a way, in a manner that is genuine, that is faithful, sacrificial, that to God it is this it is this act, beautiful act of worship. You know, Tim often talks about that, right? When we come to the time of giving and he says, now we come to this time in our service to worship in giving. He intentionally does that because, as Paul is showing us here, it really does come down to being an act of worship, just like when they would offer these offerings to him this is another type of offering one that if done with the right heart is pleasing to him it's delightful to him he likes it he enjoys it see god does not see giving as just making sure church's bills are paid or missionaries are covered or things like that these are necessary they are important but they fall far short of how he sees giving for he sees it as an act of worship Remember Cain, I think back to his offering, right? They were giving from, you know, basic material needs that they had. And God looked at Abel's and looked at Cain's a little differently, didn't he? He saw them both as acts of worship. One, false worship, worship unto himself, Cain, and the other, Abel's, was a delightful sacrifice to him because it was given from a heart wanting to honor God. And so these phrases, uh, fragrant aroma, acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing, again, they raise the value of giving to the highest levels. In fact, in Ephesians 5.2, Paul used these same terms in reference to how God viewed Christ's sacrifice. He said there that Christ loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That puts giving in a rarefied air. For God to use those kinds of same terms in regards to the sacrifice of his son, as well as giving. One day, Jesus was sitting at the temple. I think all of us know this story. He's sitting there watching people. He liked to do that. He was a mall watcher kind of guy. And he's watching people coming in and giving their offerings. 
they had offering boxes in front in the temple, and they were typically made of metal. They had a funnel, so you would drop your offering in. And so people would come dropping these coins in. There's a lot of noise. There's clanging. You know, people had some big bags. They come in, dumping it out in there, and it's all this noise. But you know what caught Jesus' attention? These two little clinks. Tink, tink. That dropped in. They weren't worth anything. A few pennies. But that's when Jesus said something. Hey, guys, look at that. That woman there, she just dropped in there everything she had. It drew our Savior's attention. And there were people coming in with some massive amounts. It said there that the rich were bringing all this money, dumping it in there, all this noise. And it was those two little clinks that Jesus was drawn to. Why? What was it about that woman's sacrifice? Or I just gave the answer away. What was it about her offering? Right? It was a sacrificial gift. She gave it to the Lord. And I think Christ was delighted in that. Fourthly, we give because of God's promise. Look again at verse 19. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now you talk about a verse that's been ripped out of context and abused mercilessly. It's this one. I've heard it, I don't know how many times used to, to justify this idea of, you know, God will give, give you whatever you want. It's all about God wanting to bless you with stuff. So you give and then he'll supply everything that, he, that your heart desires. But what's often overlooked here is what those words needs and riches mean here in this context. Paul begins verse 19 with the word and he's connecting it back to verse 18 right after talking about um, giving being a, a fragrant aroma, a soothing aroma to God. And then he gives here a tangible way in which God expresses his approval of their offering by meeting needs out of his limitless resources. My God shall supply all your needs. And what are the needs, you think, here? Notice the word needs, not wants. What do you think the needs are Paul is talking about? Certainly those would include earthly needs. Again, Proverbs 3, 9 says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats overflow with new wine. That's the sowing and reaping principle that we see in Scripture. But again, we must not limit... Paul's meaning of needs just to material things, just to financial needs. Again, that would fall short of all God desires to bless his children with. Is that all that God is concerned about for us? Is that the most important thing he's concerned about for us? We see here God says God will supply. That word and that idea is fully supply. It's an, it's an abundance. It's an overflowing. God will fully supply all your needs And this is why I'm saying it's more than just material. Notice that next phrase. He'll supply all your needs. How? According to what? According to his riches, uh, glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That would be a good way to read that. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think the glorious riches in Christ are confined to food and clothing and things like that? Is that all that it was intended Is that all that our relationship in Christ has to offer? Is that all that Jesus can afford? Is that all that he came to give us? To make sure we had material things. Didn't Jesus say, I came that my sheep may have life and have it abundantly? Didn't he say that whoever drinks of the water that I have shall not thirst again, but from that person will flow living water? Didn't Paul say in Ephesians 1, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Be assured that as God supplies all your needs, it's according to, not out of, the glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So your war with bitterness, with lust, with anger, with drunkenness, with gossip, with greed or laziness, your your battle with discontentment, with depression, with discouragement, the hurdles you face as a wife... As a husband, as a son or daughter, as a mother or father, your struggles with being single or being married. The glorious riches of Christ, I believe, includes the strength to be able to overcome these things. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Again, don't miss the connection here between 
the physical realm and the spiritual. Just as you can store up treasure in heaven by doing what you do with your money here on earth, you can also reap spiritual blessings here on earth by what you do with your money. Paul's trying to get them to be thinking that way, to understand that, that God will supply all our needs in response to our gracious and giving hearts. And that supply is not just in returning what we gave, but so, so much more. Spiritual blessings, abundant. And that's really Paul's testimony in verses 10 to 13, right? Because as he was talking about receiving their gift, he tells them, I've learned to be content in having a little or having a lot. That was one of the blessings as Paul gave of himself. God blessed him with contentment. God blessed him with joy, regardless of circumstances. Right? This letter to Philippians, what's a word repeated over and over and over? Joy, rejoicing, right? And he's writing from prison. He learned that. He learned to rely on Christ because his God supplied all of his needs. Every need. Physical and spiritual in Christ. And again, notice this is a promise. Just as Tim encouraged us earlier, there's another promise God has given. He will never leave or forsake us. Here he promises to supply all fully what you need. And as you better understand and trust in this promise, you'll be motivated to give. Now, at this point, we've seen four motivations to give. God's gospel, God's reward, God's delight, God's promise. And after Paul here has been articulating God's wonderful provision, he's been talking about God's faithfulness, his abundant goodness. At this point, as Paul is prone to do often in his letters, he just he bursts forth in verse 20 to praise God, to honor him. He says there, now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And these words are not just uh, fitting words to close his letter or, or appropriate words to conclude his verses on giving here. But they also, in this doxology, as we see him giving praise to God, we also see here a fifth motivation for worship and giving. And that is for God's glory. For God's glory. Ultimately, isn't that the reason we're to do anything? It's for his glory, isn't it? First hour is a little more lively when I ask that question. It is, right? And ultimately, that, that should be why we do anything. His glory should be the motivation that supersedes all other motivations in any issue, particularly in the area of giving. For His glory. I mean, we, we really need no other reason to give than that, do we? We need no other reason but just that God would be honored, that He would be glorified, that Jesus would be exalted. And that, brothers and sisters, that is the answer to the question that cynics And skeptics often ask, well, look, if, you know what, you guys, you keep saying God doesn't need our money. If that's the case, why do preachers keep asking for it? If he doesn't need our money, why do churches bring it up all the time? Why are there those thermometers outside and filled in pies and all this kind of stuff? It all has to do with money. It's a racket. How do we answer that question? If God really doesn't need our money, and he doesn't, right? Right? He doesn't need it. If if God could produce it in any way he wanted, and he can, right? You remember the story of Jesus and that fish, and he pulled out some coin, told Peter to go fishing, and he can get money any way he wants. If, if he doesn't need it, then it is an honest question, an interesting one, an important one. Then why give? How would you answer somebody who asked you that? Well, the Bible says so, yeah. All right, that settled it. <laughs> well, our hearts, I mean, be, to be honest, that question applies to everything we do. Because God doesn't need our money. It's not even ours, it's His. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need our prayers. He doesn't need your praise. He doesn't need your service. He doesn't need your talents. He doesn't need your church attendance. He doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. Paul said that in Acts 17, 25, when he was describing God to the Athenians. He said there in Acts 17, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. But he himself gives to all life, breath, and all things. Paul's telling him, look, God doesn't need any of us. We need him. We need him. 
And all these ways, uh, prayer, praise, and all these things, these are ways to express His worthiness because giving is a way we can extol Him and glorify Him and honor Him. That's the right response, isn't it? That's the proper response, isn't it? To the one who made us, to the one who sustains us, to the one who provides for us. We pray and we serve and we praise and we give because it is right. Because he deserves it. Because Jesus is worthy of it. To God be the glory, great things he hath done. So love thee the world gave us his son and it's true he doesn't need our money but what is the message that we send god what is the message that we send the world when we withhold from him what is his anyway what does that tell people when you take what he's given to be used for how he wants it to be used and use it for yourself is god really honored by that it reminds me of uh when God's people came out of Babylon and uh, remember the city was decimated, the temple was decimated and King Cyrus of all people, this pagan king gives them supplies, gold and silver and, and uh, wood and these things. He gives them supplies. Do you remember why? There was a task they wanted, God wanted them to complete. Go back to Jerusalem and build a temple, right? Rebuild the temple. And so they go back, they kind of get started, then they get sidetracked. What did they end up spending that money and those resources on? You remember? Yeah, making some nice houses, some nice wood paneling. I mean, they were, they were in fat city there, living in luxury. And so God sends a prophet to them, Haggai. We're going to be looking at him not too long from now. And the, God says through this prophet, what are you doing? What are you doing? Where do you think all this stuff came from? What do you think I wanted it to be used for? Who does it belong to? And it wasn't that God didn't want them to have a roof over their head and, and to be cared for and their needs cared for. That, that wasn't it at all. And he'd make sure that would be taken care of, right? What is it Jesus said? Seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Do first what I want you to do and don't worry about the rest. Trust me, I will take care of you. But the point was, he, he gave them these money, these resources to be used in the way he wanted it to be used to honor him. Go back first. You build my temple. You show the world that is what matters most, is worshiping me. And they took that stuff, they took that opportunity, and they blew it. They forgot or didn't realize that it's God's choice. It's his money to be used how he wants it to be used. It's like... um. You know, uh, stockbrokers or investors, right? You give them some money to invest so that it would grow, right? Now, whose money is that? Is it theirs? You give it to them. To, you know, they will they will earn some through their efforts, but you give it to them. It's your money to be used how you want it to be used, right? Right? Simple principle. It's exactly the same with everything we have. It's none of it's ours. None of it is ours. We've been given by the one resource, the only one who has it all, we've been given it to invest in how he wants it to be invested. And part of that investment is providing for needs within our home, things that we have. But ultimately, we need to pass the opportunity we've been given when the people of Israel had failed. Are you using what God has given you the way he wants you to use it? Are you using it to glorify him? Because, listen, whenever the glory of Christ is our aim in giving or, or whatever we do, not only is he honored, not only is he glorified, but that's when we are most fulfilled, when we're doing what he wants us to do. In fact, I think John Piper has it right. He, what is it he often says? God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. That when we see him and not things, when we see Jesus and not treasure, when we see God and not what we have, as most important, as most satisfying, that's when God's honored and glorified the most, when we treasure him above everything else. And when Jesus is your purpose for living, when he is your greatest treasure, when pleasing him is your singular goal, that is when you will experience true joy and contentment and the satisfaction that Paul expressed just a few verses earlier. 
In fact, that was Paul's aim. He said in Philippians 1.20, With all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul got it. Not perfectly, but he got it. Spend myself for Jesus and he'll take care of the rest. Beloved, do you want real joy? Do you want real purpose? Something to live for? Contentment? Regardless of circumstances? Then make your life's aim to glorify Christ. That's not a cliche. We hear that a lot. Glorify God. Glorify God. Yes, glorify God. <laughs> That's what it's all about. And the first way that, that we do that, the first way we glorify Christ is by confessing to him that we are a sinner in need of him for salvation and him and him alone. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the only way to be saved and that's the first way we glorify him nothing else we do after that glorifies christ if we haven't done that first and then when your marriage is about jesus when your parenting is about jesus when your homework is about jesus your friendships your housework your ministry your worship your praise your giving your life when that is about jesus that is when he is most glorified, and that is when you are most satisfied. And that's how Paul learned to be content. So my encouragement, brothers and sisters, is give. Give to the gospel ministry. Give for the needs of others. Give for the glory of Christ. Not because he needs it, but because he deserves it. And as we learn from Paul today, you too will be blessed in the process. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Amen. Now you may have noticed, perhaps it may strike you a little odd, in this service, which is focuses on giving, we didn't have a time of giving. That's because we wanted to, I wanted to convict you really bad and save it towards the end so that you'd like... No, we just wanted to have an opportunity to give at the end of the service so that you could reflect on the motivations that we see from Paul. Just so that giving would always be done with a right heart, a right understanding, a desire to see God glorified, a desire to honor Him, a desire to delight Him, a desire to be rewarded by Him, and a desire to see His gospel advanced. And so I wanted to give you a moment just as the ushers uh, gather themselves to get ready for this time of offering, to, to prayerfully reflect on these motivations and really ask yourselves and focus on, really, why do you give? Do you give? And if so, why? So I'm going to give you a moment to, to prayerfully reflect before we off, give an offering. Lord, uh, thank you. Thank you for the fact you are giving God one of the reasons you desire us to give is so that we would follow your example. Because you are a giver. You are generous. You are kind. You are caring. Lord, make us uh, emulate your example. Be imitators of you. Lord Jesus, help us to follow in your footsteps of one who sacrificially gave everything he had, even his own life, your own life. Thank you for that and for this opportunity that we could respond in different ways to, to worship and thank you. I know at times we talk about, Lord, just uh, all we can do is say thank you, but, but Lord, I don't know if that's fully true because there's so many other ways you have given us to express worship of you, grateful worship and prayer and praise and, and in giving. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that reflects the same heart as that dear widow, the church that reflects the same attitude as the Philippians. We would be generous and sacrificial. Lord, desire most of all to see Jesus glorified as his gospel is advanced. Lord, as disciples are being made. Lord, may we be faithful stewards of all that you have. It's your money, every bit of it everything we have our lives us we we are yours we don't even own ourselves god 
but it is you. May we use these things that you've given us to to honor you, to lift up Jesus, to be most like him. Now, Lord, please receive our gift, Lord, so that the gospel may be advanced. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.